Alaska's National Wildlife Refuge is an incredible place, but it's very fragile. And that's why I'm very proud that my Department of Interior has put forward a comprehensive plan to make sure that we're protecting the refuge. And I'm going to be calling on Congress to make sure that they take it one step further, designating it as a wilderness so that we can make sure that this amazing wonder is preserved for future generations. We've also opened up ANWR in Alaska for energy exploration, creating even more jobs and more and more energy savings. For over 40 years, they've been trying to open ANWR. We got it open. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of climate exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions with your hosts, Amanda Griffiths, Ryan Maya, and Maria Virginia Olano. So ANWR is a term that has been in the news a lot for the past four or five decades. Mm -hmm. What exactly does ANWR stand for and what's the controversy around it? So ANWR, that's A-N-W-R, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and that's in northeastern Alaska. It's about uh, almost 20 million acres up in the Alaska North Slope region, the largest national wildlife refuge in the whole country. Uh, It's a bit larger than the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge. It was established in the 1950s after an article was published calling it the last great wilderness. It has a lot of biodiversity, many different plants and animal species, but it's kind of contentious in a large part due to the thought that it has a lot of oil. Right. And so the argument on that side goes that when the United States bought Alaska from Russia, it was under the premise that it had vast natural resources, right? That's the reason they bought Alaska. Yeah, why else buy this? Conservationists and environmentalists have been advocating to protect this land, The argument against that goes that the whole point of getting it was for the oil, right? But how much oil are we really talking about? Is there any oil there to begin with? So researchers say that the amount of extractable oil is just about six months worth at the current rate of American consumption. But ironically enough, most people think that Americans would never actually use that oil because it would actually get exported overseas. Because of the location, right? It doesn't make sense to bring it to... Down to the mainland United States to refine it and then use it there. That would be pricey, whereas you could just sell the crude abroad for a higher price. So that kind of debunks the whole idea that this is for Americans' energy security because it isn't. Yeah, even though that's what we see in a lot of the rhetoric, both from the industries themselves as well as uh, Congress members in favor, it's always that America's energy security argument, the, oh, we have energy abroad, why are we importing all this energy when we could use the energy in our own backyard. In reality, that argument's kind of just a front for this desire to just take that oil and push it overseas. Let's talk a little more about the Anwar region. The part of Anwar that's most contentious is called the Tenotu area. That's what they're trying to open up for oil and gas drilling. It's actually called the Tenotu because uh, back in 1980, when Jimmy Carter was president, he signed into law the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, which 
which designated 104 million acres of land in Alaska as national parks. But then under Section 1002 said that there had to be an inventory of the fish and wildlife resources in that area and that the potential petroleum reserves could be evaluated through surface geological studies and seismic exploration surveys, but no exploratory drilling was allowed. Uh, So even today, uh, even though there's a lot of saying that this region is very energy rich, there actually hasn't been that many conclusive studies of of the region's oil due to the fact that this uh, Section 1002, no exploratory drilling, is allowed. Right. So any oil or gas exploration up there right now needs to be approved by Congress, right? Correct. And this actually came really close to happening in the 80s. It was going to be opened up for oil and gas companies when the Exxon Valdez, a vessel from ExxonMobil, spilled a huge quantity of oil in the Prince William Sound of the southern coast of Alaska in 89. Uh So that was kind of like the huge turning point in which that piece of legislation was kind of dead because it was so devastating. Yeah, and even today we hear about that that giant oil spill being both an argument against more drilling in Alaska, but also just offshore drilling, the, the various natural environmental implications that you can have of expanded drilling in America, the devastating environmental consequences still referred to today. And even after that, even after this huge oil spill in 89, in the 90s, when Bill Clinton was in office and the Senate and House were both controlled by the Republican Party, it came really close to actually passing again. The allowance for oil gas exploration in the 1002 disguised within a budget bill that was actually vetoed by President Clinton. Yeah. And funny enough, that was right around the time that the Kyoto Protocols were also being argued. We talked about that a bit in our last episode. Clinton and his VP Al Gore, very environmentally friendly environmental advocates, but the House and Senate not having it at that time. But in this case, I guess it was President Clinton really getting to assert his ability to protect the region. Right. But this is really pertinent to right now because we are once again seeing a Congress that is controlled by the Republican Party but now also an executive branch that doesn't seem very concerned with environmental protection and has in fact rolled back regulations from the Obama era and even from before on national monuments even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see that Trump's cabinet is also weakening the restrictions on the use of our our nation's land. Uh, We have Ryan Zinke, the Secretary of the Interior, loosened dozens of rules on the nation's land about how it can be sold, opening up to selling to private interests. Scott Pruitt, of course, fan of nothing environmental, uh, it seems, completely on the side of opening up to oil and gas. And the expansion of all offshore drilling, right, in all coastal states, except for Florida. Yes. And actually, New Jersey recently passed legislation banning offshore drilling over in the Jersey Shore, which is great to hear. But Alaska definitely still is uh, up for grabs. So the issue is complicated even further by the fact that there is a native tribe that lives in the contested area. They're the Gwich'in tribe native to Alaska. They have organized for over 15 years to fight against any oil and gas drilling in the region, arguing that their livelihoods are compromised if the land is opened up for oil exploration. Yeah, their livelihoods is uh, heavily reliant on the porcupine caribou herd. 
Right. And uh, they actually birth their calves each year in that area 1002. So there's all these arguments that if they were to start drilling in the area, that would have a huge impact on the caribou and consequently on the, the Gwich'in tribe. Right. And the name Gwich'in actually literally translates to people of the caribou. And so not just for food do they depend on the caribou, but it's deeply tied to their spiritual practices and beliefs. So this brings the environmental fight to a whole new area of human rights. And it opens up the discussion to know that it's not only the Gwich'in in Alaska that have been disproportionately affected by oil and gas industries, but this has been seen in America and around the world with indigenous populations specifically uh, being disproportionately impacted by drilling, basically. Yeah, and by the fact that oftentimes indigenous peoples, they lack the the voice in the halls of Congress, the political capital. They're disenfranchised in ways that prevent them from having their, their livelihoods protected. You, you really don't hear about it when you hear the talk about Anwar. And uh, our guest today is really trying to help shape that uh, discussion to discuss more of the human element, the human rights impacts of uh, the Anwar drilling. Yeah, so today we are speaking with Brennan Lagasse. He's joining us all the way from Lake Tahoe in California. He's a passionate writer, educator, and mountain guide whose work has brought him to all seven of the world's continents. He has spent a lot of time in Alaska and has, for the past few years, led a group of students to the Arctic Nation for a cultural immersion sustainability course. So we're very excited to talk to him because he has also seen firsthand as a skier and ski instructor a lot of the landscapes uh, that we're talking about. Hi, Hi, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, anything to do with the refuge, it's a lifelong commitment and I'm happy to uh, speak with you. Awesome. As a ski guide, you spent a lot of time outdoors and specifically in the Arctic. So we wanted to kind of, if you could tell us how you've seen the landscape or ecosystem changing throughout the years and throughout your time, if, if you've had any firsthand experience with the effects of climate change. Yes, I, I have. And, and I think in order to really see those effects yourself, you need to be in a place and develop a sense of place with that particular area and be able to go back to it year after year. And um, I actually just returned from Alaska where I have spent um, eight years in the same spot. And eight years on the climate record is, is a drop in the bucket. It's not much. We've seen more chaotic weather patterns. And this is something that I believe is correlated to other areas of the world as well. I have had the fortune of working in Greenland for three years. And this year, the place where we work on the west side of Greenland, um, which is right at the Arctic Circle, there's not enough snow to run the trip that we've had exceptional experiences doing in the past. What I find the most fascinating is connecting with people in Greenland or Alaska and talking to them, the people that are even more place-based. And what I'm thinking about specifically right now is the work I've done in the Arctic Refuge. You know, there's people in Arctic Village that have spent their whole lives there. Their first-hand account isn't eight years. It's not 10 years. It's 50 years. It's 60 years. And when they start talking to you about how willow has been growing in the community and they've never seen willow grow in the past and how it impacts the caribou migrations and brings more moose into the area, which also drives caribou out, you start to have a different qualitative sense of the climate record as well. So 
I think there's a myriad of different ways to understand how the climate is changing, and it's and it's certainly exacerbated at, at the poles, both in the Arctic and also in the Antarctic, where I've had the fortune of, of working for several years as well. Right, so you've actually visited all seven continents of the world, is that right? Yeah, I've been able to ski on all seven of the of the continents across the world, and, and again, when you're able to to visit the same places over time and, and have those experiences, you, you notice change, you see change. With the refuge, the wildlife and all the other species that live there, over 200 different species of migratory birds, the porcupine caribou herd, polar bears, all the aquatic life forms, it really is a place unlike anywhere else in the world. And I have still never been anywhere like the Arctic Refuge. And to think about going in there and creating irreparable, irreversible damage is absolutely the opposite of where this world should be going in terms of understanding what is special and what needs to be protected. Yeah, so you've been very vocal about uh, your opposition to the current administration and Alaskan senators who have been advocating for the Anwar region to be opened up for oil and gas exploration. Tell us a bit more about that. How would that affect Alaska? And do you view that political front as a threat? It's a complete threat. And if you talk to people that are place-based, again, and, and locals, you can get different perspectives from people. And the truth of the matter is, is the only people that are really going to benefit from the Arctic Refuge being opened are the corporations that are going to make money off of their rate of return and have a rate of return on their investment and profit their shareholders. There is no long-term benefit to ecosystems or communities from going into the refuge. 95% of the North Slope of Alaska is open to oil production. The Arctic Refuge is the last 5% that is still somewhat protected. And now technically it's not because the current administration opened it up. There's a lot going on currently, especially domestically in the United States with regards to environmental policy and environmental laws and social justice, and where people feel so threatened at such a level that it almost doesn't seem real, but it is real. And this is mobilizing quite a bit of folks. And I'm trying to see that from the positive side of things, while so many others are unfortunately bearing a burden that's not equal and unjust for them to do so. Right. And so that kind of leads us to our next question. You have spent some time with indigenous communities up in Alaska, right? You've been taking students for the past couple of years and understanding this issue as beyond just climate change and fighting climate change as an issue of really human rights and social justice and equity. So talk a little bit more about the indigenous population's plight that is not unique to Alaska, but it's actually seen all over the world in the way in which oil and gas companies disproportionately affect indigenous populations. Chevron in Ecuador, Shell in Nigeria, it, the list goes on and on. It, it's difficult to clump everything together. That shouldn't be the case and make just generalities. There is a thread to be connected and sewn across the world in terms of how indigenous people have had their lands taken from them. And these issues like the Arctic Refuge really is an issue of human rights. And when I sit there and have had the fortune of learning from Sarah James, an elder in the Gwich'in tribe. She very articulately speaks to this issue as, yes, it's an, an issue of indigenous rights, but it's an issue of human rights as well. To me, in order to protect the earth and to respect the earth as such, you need to protect the people. And you need to go back to community and understand that the people, for example, the Gwich'in, you can't get more place-based than where they are in Arctic Village. They know their backyard. And these communities that are so intimately connected to their environment have a lot to share and teach 
as they've done graciously for many years. That speaks a little bit to what is the paradox of the Arctic in general, and it's the fact that it's a region that has been most impacted by the effects of climate change due to greenhouse gases, and it's being debated whether or not to go back in and drill those fossil fuels. And it's the same in the Arctic Circle with ice caps melting and people around the world rushing in and saying, how can we go drill for more oil that will cause more warming. So it's just kind of a concentration of these issues. It most certainly is. And it's also another thing to say that those communities that live up there and have been there for for time immemorial, what impacts have they offered to the world to fuel climate change? They haven't. The deeper you go, you start to understand that the Arctic and the Antarctic are completely crucial for keeping the balance of life on this earth. You know, and when you go to Greenland, and you see that ice cap melting and you're in Antarctica and you see these changes, you got to imagine what is that going to be like on down the road. And that's where I think it's difficult still for humans. And we just live in such a way where, you know, thinking about what might happen 100 years down the line is difficult. And so in moving forward, what words do you have for the future of the Arctic refuge in how to move forward? Because these communities have been mobilizing politically and they're down in D.C. and they're really fighting for their livelihoods. Do you see a time soon where the refuge will actually be considered a national monument or be protected from oil and gas? Well, the thing about the last part that you just said is, you know, those of us that attached to this issue knew that before Obama got pushed out of office, there was a really good chance to get national monument status. And that didn't happen. And it seems as though, you know, even if that was considered a national monument, the current administration most likely would have stripped that protection away, right? And the previous administration had tried to, had introduced a wilderness bill. The strongest federal protection that the Arctic Refuge could get would be wilderness. That would be a wilderness designation. That being said, I took that from what was offered to me by those allies, by those other organizations, those other groups, and specifically the Guijin, who said that this is what they want. In order to engage in these issues, you don't need to just go take. You don't need to just go show up and be like, hey, I'm a well-intentioned human. Like, I, I really want to help you. That That's nice, but there's a long history of that too. You need to put some more time in and engage with these folks in such a way that says, what can I do for you? Don't take the power. You know, what you need to listen to are the people on the ground, those that are most affected, and especially right now, those indigenous perspectives and voices and people who are doing such incredible work. Listen to them and ask them if you can be of service and what you can do. Right. And any any movement towards sustainability or energy transitions or kind of solving this climate crisis really does have to come from the bottom up. And I think what you have just said right. is sums that up. Yeah. And that's and that's really what well, you're you're nailing it. And this is stuff that I mean, in my younger 20s, that that really revolutionized like the way I was thinking about things, because I just hadn't really thought about it. I had yet to been given the tools of, of critical knowledge, and I had yet to really break outside of the box, you know. And one of the things that I've been running with lately for myself, um, very supportive for folks that are interested in this conversation we're having right now, and the human potential has not been reached. Now. So to really understand that that potential exists out there, I think it supports that idea of hope, and we need hope. If I really sit and think about it, that's what gives me the greatest amount of hope is knowing that something else that hasn't been created yet is out there that can really take sustainability, get rid of it, and get to this world of where humans really can take care of each other and um, understand that our ecology and our environments, are without them, we don't exist. 
Well, thank you so, so much. This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for what you're doing as well. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform. And follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And thanks for listening. Stay cool.